0: All right, well, good morning, guys. It's really good to be back with you again. Um, Dustin preached last week, and he covered Acts six, seven, eight, and I heard he did an absolutely phenomenal job. Um, we, I guess myself and five other people, were on a trip to the Dominican Republic, doing some mission work down there, and we flew in late Friday night, and I'm just really excited about being here with you today. So if you have a Bible, we're going to continue in our Act series, and we're going to look at the life of Paul in Acts chapter 9. So there's going to be a lot of text today. Some of it's going to be on the screen, some of it's not. If you don't have a Bible, that's cool. We have them on the ends of the rows. If you just grab one of those and follow along with us, I'll tell you where we're going to be, but we're going to cover a lot of text today. So Acts chapter 9, all right? Hey, the, the, I think it was the night before we left for the Dominican Republic at about 2 a.m., um, my dog started barking like, Guard dog bark. By the way, if you're gonna have an animal, a dog's the way to go. Um, we covered that a lot around here. Not a cat, but anyway, um, my wife, you know, half asleep, she rolls over and kind of taps me, and she's like, "You need to go downstairs and check that out." Um, and you know, at some point, you kind of bow up a little bit, and then nobody's looking. You're you're a little scared, and you're walking down the stairs. I mean, my dog was barking ferociously. I'm like, "Gosh, I'm about to go on a trip." somebody's breaking into our house. So I go downstairs and I'm looking around and I'm looking out the window and looking and I hear Allison, Billy, it's a cat. Like literally 2 a.m. it's like my dog sitting there telling me evil's lurking right outside of your door and you need to be aware of that. Uh, But seriously, have you ever noticed that most things in life aren't quite what they seem, right? Most of the time you think that there's an intruder and there's not. And Uh, I don't know if you realize this or if you even experience this, but most of your life doesn't quite turn out the way that you think it's going to, at least that's the way my life is. If I were to go back and watch and trace the steps of my life, there's no way, absolutely no way, I would have ever imagined I'd be standing here. I told most of you, if you've been here before, I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't know what a pastor did. I never stepped foot in a church until I was 16 years old. And if you would have told me as a teenager that I would have planted a church and I'd be pastoring a church, I would have told you you're absolutely crazy because I don't know what those priests do. That's what most of life looks like, right? Right? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt the disappointment that in the moment of like, God, uh, the honest questions that you might be tracking with, and you're like, God, I don't know what you're doing. Like, where are you and what's happening in my life? You ever felt that? Let me just ask, are you willing to admit that? Are you willing to admit that? Like that most of life, seriously, doesn't really turn out the way that you think. What I want to show you today is that that's a picture of Paul's life. See, we're going to look at this character named Paul that he had a a vision for his life. He was zealous for his life, and God used him in amazing ways. But listen, he used him in such a way that Paul would have never imagined in a million years was possible. And why do I tell you that? It's because Paul's conversion, what we're going to see today, is a picture of what the Christian life looks like. Oftentimes, the Christian life is a pattern of trust that when you look back and you have perspective on, you can actually see the movement of God in a way that you can't in the moment. And I tell people this all the time. If you knew exactly what was happening all the time, you wouldn't have to have faith at all because you would just trust in yourself. So here's what I want you to see today is Paul's life is an imprint or a replication of what all of our lives are supposed to look like in the Christian life. So are you ready? Acts chapter 9. We're going to look at the beginning of Paul's ministry, okay? But before we do that, I've got some work I've got to do. So if you'll hang with me, I'm going to recap a little bit because you kind of have to know who this guy is. So let me set the stage. Walk with me through this for just a second, okay? One of the things you're going to notice over and over and over again is that Paul's life doesn't match what he thinks, okay? It's not what he expected. Again, Paul, this, this character who, if you've been around Christianity at all, is known to be one of the, like, greatest... Um, missionaries or apostles that, that the world has ever seen, except for the fact that Paul's life faced disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. If you were to look at Paul, Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, that his entire life was disappointment to the point in which Jesus has to come to him in 2 Corinthians 12 and say, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in your weakness. And then Paul, he goes on, he says, if that's true, therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my persecutions, my insults, my calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. But that Paul, this pillar of the faith, is not the Paul that you actually see in the book of Acts. So let me retrace who it is. Acts chapter 7, verse 58, really quickly. Then they cast him, him being Stephen that we talked about last week, out of the city and stoned him. OK, here's the picture. There's this guy who's a follower of Jesus who's proclaiming the gospel, and he's getting stoned, literally not that kind of stone, but the stone, like they picked up a rock and killed him for his faith. And listen, here's what it says, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul is the Hebrew name for Paul. Paul's name changed, so Paul is the Greek name for Saul. So this is your guy. When you see Saul, think Paul, OK? And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when they had said this, he fell asleep. Acts 8.1, listen, and Saul, Paul, approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Okay, you have to understand who this Saul guy was. He was a murderer. Like literally a murderer. He was the guy who was standing there overseeing the execution of Stephen. All right, let, let me put it this way. The Apostle Paul looked way more like Osama bin Laden than he did me. Get that picture in your head, okay? Extremist terrorists, his goal was to destroy the church of God. Why do I say that? Here, let me pause for just a second. Let me, let me address something. If you think that you are too far gone for God to do anything in your life, just look at Paul. I just need you to see that. God is in control and he's bigger than your circumstances or anything you've ever done. So I don't know what you've done. I don't know what you're carrying today, but this brother right here, he killed people and God was able to change his heart. Don't ever believe the lie that what you have done is too far gone for God. You see, you may think... You may think this, just like Paul, that you're zealous for God and your independence and your, and your conquering of the world. But here, here's why this is a pattern. What you're going to see over and over again, listen, when you live independently from God, you are not for God. You're actually against God, just like Paul. What you have to understand about Paul is Paul was trying to do what he thought was right. But he wasn't. See? But here's the good news. Here's the good news. God changed Paul. He literally changed his heart and he took a murderer he took a terrorist and he made him zealous for God it, it, listen no matter what you've done big or small God can change you honestly that's the beauty of grace that's the picture of Paul God does the work God changes sinners and he makes them saints and this is why you see his name change and I'm gonna show you this in a little bit but this guy named Saul He gets a new name. When he receives this name, it's a new identity. One of the things you have to realize in the Bible, I I have three kids, and um, naming your kids is really difficult. Um, Most of our kids got their name on the way out of the hospital, not the way in. We just kind of argue about that. But, But here's the thing. We name kids because we think they're great names. In the Bible, when you received a name, you received a name based on your identity. So let me give you a few of these. Jacob. Jacob in the Old Testament, one of my favorite stories in Genesis 32, his name Jacob, it literally means the great deceiver or heel grabber. Um, His entire life was characterized by a name that he was given called deception. One day, he gets angry about his name. He's tired of being the deceiver, and he comes face to face with God, and God asks him a really, really, really important question. He says, Jacob, what's your name? Now, you think, dummy, you know my name. Right? No, but here's what he's saying. Who are you? And Jacob, for the very first time in his life, says, I am Jacob. I am the deceiver. And God says, no, you're not. You're Israel. You're the promise. You see this over and over. Peter, Peter's name was changed when he came face to face with Jesus. His name was Simon. Now it's Peter, the rock that God was going to build his church off of. And then you have Paul. Paul's name literally means small or weak because the rest, of God, the rest of Paul's life, he needs to be reminded that God's grace is sufficient for him. And it's in his weakness that God was going to do absolutely incredible things. Listen to me. This is what the gospel does. Okay? It gives you a new name. Maybe like me, your name was arrogant or prideful. I know those are the same things. Or deceiver or liar or sinner or adulterer. Maybe you have the A on your chest. Do you know what the gospel does? When you come face to face with God, he says, not anymore. Your name is what I give you. And what I give you is righteous and holy in Christ. Let me give you a word. It's a big word. It's a theological word. It's called imputation. Imputation simply means this, is when Jesus lived the life you can never live, when he died the death you deserve to die, when he rose from the grave, listen, his righteousness is given to you as a gift that you can never do anything for. Why? Because Jesus lived your life, he died your death, he paid your penalty, and for God to be a just God, he cannot punish you twice for something that's already been taken care of on somebody who didn't deserve it. You get this, right? This is the gospel. The gospel is Jesus in my place. That's why we wear this. That's why we talk about this in baptism. Okay, this is what Paul's life was. God looked at him and he says, Paul, your life does not, is that characterized by what you did because what I did is I stood in your place. So all, of, all the punishment that you deserve for your murder is death and I took your death upon myself and now I give you a new name. And that name is righteous and holy. I love this, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, remember, this is Paul talking. He is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. That's the gospel, right? And here, here's what you have to stop doing. Guys, I, before we dive into this text, let me just address this really quickly. I think the greatest problem that we have as a society is we reduce our identity down to a word. Let me, let me give you an example of this. I'm black or I'm white or I'm gay or whatever, Okay, those are parts of maybe who you are, but they're not who you are. And this is what I tell people all the time, is you have to stop identifying yourself by one word, and you've got to see that God has created something far bigger than that. Listen, you are not just that. You are a child of God. You are those things, but you are so much more than those things. And when you see yourself the way that God sees you, I promise you what you begin to see is you see that your identity is so much larger than the caricature that you've given yourself or that society's given to you. And that allows you to love people, and that allows you to see people the way that God sees people. And I think this is what Paul is seeing right here, is yes, Paul, you did do those things, but you don't get to define your label, God does. And you are a child of God, and he has given you a new name, and that is a better name. He's given you a name that's bigger than any other thing that you've ever done, because his identity is now in Christ, and that identity lives forever and ever and ever And that's what you're going to see in Acts chapter 9. So what I want to do is, if you have a Bible, let me read for you Paul's conversion really quickly. Okay? Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. But Saul, Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, by the way, the way is what Christianity was called until later on in the book of Acts. So when you see the way, he's just talking about Christianity. Men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and, and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice and seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they laid him by they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither ate or drank. Now There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And and the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon the name, right? Bro, God, I don't know if you know who this brother is, but you want me to go to him? But the Lord said to him, go. Listen, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and to the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So this is the picture, okay? Okay. This guy who had just killed, literally killed Stephen, the blood is still wet on his hands, is walking to Damascus with a letter in his hand to kill more people. And he is struck by God. And he sees a vision of who God is. And then God goes to Ananias in a vision. He says, Hey, I need you to go tell the gospel to him. Ananias is like, Whoa, 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 do you know who that is? And God says, Do you not know who I am? I am bigger than you, and I am bigger than what he's done. And I need you to go tell him because he is my chosen instrument. You get the picture? Okay, all through the book of Acts so far, what you have seen is God uses people and the gospel spreads. Listen, God is building his church and thousands of people are coming to faith. The gospel is spreading like wildfire and at the same time, this guy named Saul, he's been studying at this thing called the Sanhedrin, which would have been like the Harvard for Jewish boys that want to be like the best of the best priests ever. Okay, this guy, he's zealous for God. He wants, he wants to serve God and he couldn't imagine in his wildest dreams what God was going to do. So, Saul catches wind of this movement called the way, this Christianity, and he gets angry because he's zealous for God. Remember, Paul is trying his hardest to do whatever he can to worship God, except God's like, bro, you've got the wrong God, and I've got much bigger and different plans than what you could ever imagine, right? This guy, this guy who is supervising the destruction of Christianity is now going to be the guy who's going to take the gospel for to the nation's. Think about this. Sometimes I think God's sitting up in heaven and he's kind of laughing at us. I I mean, get get the picture. I think God's like, guys, don't forget that I understand what I'm doing. You might only be able to see what's right in front of you, but do you not understand that since the beginning of the world, I have been laying my plan through redemptive history to accomplish my purposes? Listen, think about it. Think about what God was doing with Paul to advance the gospel. Maybe God was walk, working in Paul's life to allow him to go to the Sanhedrin so he would be educated, right? So this brother would be able to stand before kings and maybe, maybe so that he had a literary ability to be able to write the, a logical explanation, a reasonable explanation through the entire Bible so that you 2,000 years later would be able to see that God is glorious and good, right? Maybe God would give Paul Roman citizenship and he would do all these things so that he would have the opportunity to stand before kings one day. See, God was taking a guy that you and I could never ever imagine coming to faith and he was transforming his life so that you and I could never ever take credit for what God does. So God takes the foolishness of the world to shame the wise, and he takes a man like Paul who you would have never imagined. He educates him, he gives him a platform, he gives him citizenship so that the gospel would flourish throughout the world. And again, let me just say this, let me say this, do you think you're too far for God? The answer is No. I can't imagine what God might be doing in your life. Have you not been listening? God is bigger than your problems. God is bigger than your greatest sin. And honestly, God's grace is at work in this place in ways that you will never imagine. And the reason why God does it that way is because he wants you to trust him. Listen, grace is giving you what you don't deserve. And that's what he's doing. You might be thinking, yeah, Billy, I get that. But you don't know what I've done. And you're right, I don't but I know this brother was a terrorist and I bet you haven't done that. And if, if you have, don't, don't tell me. I, I don't want to know. But I bet you it's true. Right, let me say this. Let me say this. God also, right, he often doesn't look at people the way you and I do either. I just say that. Listen, maybe you've given up on somebody. Maybe you're sitting in this room and you're thinking, that's good, but you don't know my dad. That's what I'm thinking. Transparent, my dad is not a great man. Abusive, adulterous, you you name it, he's done it. And this is what I think when I look at Paul. I'm like, that's it's fine for you, but you don't know my family. And God's sitting here saying, You don't know me. And you don't know how big I am, and you don't know you, and you don't know what I did for you. Listen, somebody in this room needs to hear this. God's not done yet. He's not done with you, he's still in control. God is sovereign. He's not done with your family. He's not done with whoever you need to fill in the blank with. God knows exactly what he's doing. Every bit of it, every bit of life, every bit of history is working together for the good of those who love him. Now, it might not be the way you think, but listen to me. God is moving. If you're sitting here today and you're wondering, does God love me? God, the gospel proves that he does. Romans 5 eight while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. He didn't wait for you to clean up your mess before he loved you enough to put on flesh, come down to this earth. And think about this. I think you need to be amazed by this. This is the same God who spoke and the stars came into being. That God subjected himself to humanity and became a man so that you wouldn't have to die that death. Next time you question God's love for you, you need to go read the Bible. He loves you far more than you could ever imagine. And honestly, that's what we're going to do at the end of this service is we're going to celebrate a baptism. And all of baptism is, it's a public proclamation. It's, it's simply you going and saying, God, you died for me. I know you did, and I want to live for you. And so you go underwater, and you come back up, and it's the most beautiful, signifying, gracious moment of your life because all it does is it says, God, you're mine, and I'm yours, and I want to come and be unified with you. So I say that because if that's you, if you're in this room and you need that, if you need, if you've never done that, our elder team, we want to just talk to you. Like, no pressure. You don't have to get baptized today. But maybe it's time for you to take a next step. Maybe it's time for you to stop being your own worst enemy and writing your own story. And maybe it's time for you to realize that God loves you and there's nothing you can do about it. Because he's already done everything necessary to save you. Verse 20. Read with me. And... Immediately, so after he's converted, and immediately he proclaims Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who call upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but the disciples took him by night and let him down through the opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiply. Guys, obviously my story's not as drastic as Paul's. This brother comes to faith and instead of killing everybody, everybody's trying to kill him. But can I just tell you, like Paul, all of us who have come to faith have a story and our stories are quite difficult. Honestly, I can tell you that when I became a follower of Jesus, um, I thought more highly of myself than I ought. And I wanted to be the best at everything. I was a Division One athlete. I was everything that you would think the world would want. And I became a follower of Jesus. And I realized none of that was important. But nobody liked me anymore. Like, all my friends disappeared. Honestly, I felt like that. I felt like, God, what are you doing? Like, I went from the guy who I thought I wanted to be to the guy nobody liked. And I'm just honest with you, following Jesus isn't easy, but it's worth it. It is worth it. I wish somebody would have told me that when I came to faith, everything would be easy. I wish somebody would have told me like, no, man, every reason I love you, you're going to be great. You're going to be like Tim Tebow and everything like you're going to be on TV and like you're going to talk about Jesus all the time. And every... That's just not how it works. You have to die to yourself. And part of dying to yourself is really, really difficult. I wish somebody would have told me how it actually works. But I also wish somebody would have told me that it's worth it. As I look back, I don't know how many years later, 15, 16, 17, something, I see God's redemptive plan in my life. And I wish somebody would have just said, hang in there. Hang in there, brother. It's going to be okay. And God's going to use you. See, I want want you to see something. I want you to see a little detail in this passage that I read, that if you don't look closely, if you don't read intently, you'll miss it. Go back to verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. You miss it? You see it? Very first line, if you have a pen or pencil or something, you underline things. When many days had passed. That's an important phrase. Many days. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 1, many days was three years. It was three years before he met the, before he met the disciples. Three years of breathing threats. Three years of people trying to kill him. And there's, another, there's another one right here, okay? Verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. But they were afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Galatians chapter 2, Paul tells us that's 14 years. 14 years. Guys, 17 years before this brother ever becomes a missionary. Here's what I want you to see. 17 years of hard labor, of people trying to kill him, of his life not going the way that he wanted it to go. And I don't know if Paul's like me. I don't know if his culture was like this, but I want immediate gratification. I don't know if you're like this. I want to come to faith, and I want to start changing the world today. Like, I want to put the Superman ass on my chest and get on an airplane, and the entire world changed. But did you know that's just not how it works? It's in the valleys. It's in the deserts. It's in the dry and weary land that you often become the most desperate, and it's in those places that you depend and grab onto God, and God does something through you. I say this often. Maybe God's trying to do something in you more than he's trying to do something through you. You ever thought about that? That maybe God's trying to create you to be the person that he wants you to be so that he can accomplish what he needs to. I tell you this, be honest with you, I've been a pastor for 11 years. It took me 11 years to become the pastor of this church, and you better believe you would rather have me now than 11 years ago. That's how God works. Listen, you see this, every single person that God uses greatly in the Bible, he does this with David. David was declared king. I don't know if you know this, but after David was declared king, he went to the pasture land to pick up sheep dung for seven years before he becomes king. And do you know how he became king? He became king because his dad tells him to bring a sandwich to his brothers who are on the battlefield fighting Goliath. And David shows up and everybody's scared. And he's like, what are you doing? Do you not believe God? Let's go do this together. David does that. Moses. Moses was declared that by God that he would free the people of Israel out of Egypt. Do you know how many years later it was until that actually happened? Forty. Joseph. Joseph given a vision by God that he would save his brothers and sisters, or his brothers. He tells his brothers, which is not a good thing to do, and then he gets sold into slavery, and 20 years later, he saves them. Paul, Paul had to learn, had to grow before he could be sent out. 17 years, 17 years, 17 years before God used him, and at the end of that, the only promise that Paul was given is that he would get God. I asked my staff this Two weeks ago before we left, and I want to ask you the same question. If we labor for 17 years at this church, this church is one year old now, and at the end of it, all we get is God, are you willing to do it? Is he enough? Is he enough? Listen to me. Listen to me and write this down. God's silence doesn't equal his absence. God is working in your life, brothers and sisters. Even though you can't see it, I want you to hang in there. Charles Spurgeon, he said it like this. Grace does not choose a man and leave him as he is. I love that. That's how God's working. See, God has a plan. God has a plan, but I don't want you to waste the season that you're in because in this season of wandering and suffering and, and wandering through the desert, maybe God is molding you into the man that he, or the woman that he wants you to be, the person, so that he can accomplish what God wants to do through you. You ever thought about that? See, here's the thing. You notice that Paul, he didn't wait, though. I want want you to see this juxtaposition. 17 years before God used him, but it was right away when he started sharing the gospel. I saw this down in the Dominican last week. God often uses people who just convert to Christianity and far... Kanye West, right? All over Twitter right now. I'm I'm being serious. Like, this this joker might not have all the theology figured out, but what he does is he has a platform, and he's zealous for God, and God used him. This is what you see with Paul. Verse 20, look at this. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus. Immediately. He comes to face and immediately he proclaims Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. He is the Son. This is the same guy that was just killing people for saying that Jesus was the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, not, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon the name? And has he not come here for this purpose? To bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. I see it immediately. Immediately, God starts using him and immediately he starts preaching the gospel. <laughs> and people are amazed. You'd be amazed too, right? If you, saw, if you saw the dude who leads ISIS get up on TV tomorrow and he's like, look, I met Jesus and my life is different and let me tell you about him. You'd be amazed. Think about that. See, I think that they were amazed at what God had done through him. The radical shift that would have happened. The 180 in Paul's life. From going from the person who's killing to the person who's about to be killed. But you notice what God does. Look at verse 22 again. But Saul increased all the more in strength. God gave him what he needed. And confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. See, maybe maybe you're here. And you're like, okay. I got that. What do I do with it? Can I challenge you? Same challenge I gave to our team in the Dominican. Same challenge I give to our staff. And our, I, I wrote this down. This is a mouthful. Listen, to This this might sound crazy, but listen, share the gospel. Sometimes you need to speak the gospel to believe the gospel. And by believing the gospel, you grow in your confidence of the gospel. That's a mouthful, but that's how it works. Sometimes you speak the truth over yourself. And when you speak the truth over yourself, you have to begin to believe the truth in yourself or else you can't speak that truth. And as you do that, you grow in strength and confidence in doing it. It's like anything. The more reps you have, the more you'll begin to believe it. Listen, the greatest lie you can believe is that you're not good enough or you have to have it all figured out before you do something, right? God is going to work in you, but I promise you, here's what you see in Paul's story is he didn't have any of it figured out. He met Jesus, he saw Jesus, and he started speaking about Jesus, and people came to faith, and that's how God works. God is building his church. God is on the move, and God will change you as you push forward. okay? Verse 26, And when they had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, And they were all afraid of him, and they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, and he brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name. See that? Everybody noticed. Everybody. When you had been with Jesus. I I love this. I think, I don't know if Dustin said this last week, but at the end of Stephen's life, Stephen's the guy that Paul executed. Okay, at the end of Stephen's life, it says that they are all picking up stones. And the one thing that they noticed, they said they could see on his face that he had been with Jesus. I don't know about you, but that's what I want my life to look like. I want you to look at me and say, I don't know what he's saying, but you can tell that brother's been with Jesus. Right? Here's what I want you to see. God is doing a great work. He always has been, and he continues to do that work today. He took a guy that nobody would have expected, and he changed the world through him. And my question for you is, why can he not do this in us? Let me connect the dots really quickly, and all in this sermon. Let me connect the dots through the book of Acts. We're nine chapters in right now, and I want you to see how God's working. So you don't have to flip there, but just listen. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, you see the sage said that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he says that he is going to tell you all that Jesus began to do and teach. Here's what he's telling you is that God's not done. He's not done doing and teaching. So God gathers 11 scared disciples who would have never done anything at all. They were scattered around, and he gathers them together. He ascends to heaven and he looks at them and he says, I'm going to fill you with my spirit and you are going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and you are going to be empowered by me and I will be with you. It's the same thing that you actually see over and over and over again in scripture. Matthew chapter 28, the very last thing that God, that Jesus tells his disciples before he goes, listen, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. He tells them the same exact thing. Go, go all over the world, and I will put my spirit inside of you, and I will continue to do my work through you. You get that 11 uneducated men who are huddled together in a small room in Jerusalem, takes the gospel to the ends of the earth, and you see it start happening in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. You see people that God had brought from all over the world come to Jerusalem for this thing called Pentecost. Pentecost, meaning penta, 50 days after um, this festival where they're coming to worship. God, okay? And then the Holy Spirit falls on the apostles, and they begin to speak the gospel in everybody's language, and all these people are looking around like, what the heck is happening? Like, how are you talking? How are you doing this? How am I understanding the gospel? Listen, and then 3,000 people come to faith. From 11 uneducated ordinary people who were afraid to do anything, 3,000 people come to faith. They start gathering into this church in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, and God begins to teach them how to be generous and kind and loving. And, And here's why he does this. Watch this. This is so cool because those brothers had to go home. You're like, what? What are you talking about? Listen, those 3,000 people came together. God tells them what a church looks like and he sends them back out and they go to their cities. And oftentimes when you read the Bible, when you read the book of Acts, what you see is Paul and Peter, who would be the two greatest missionaries that would take the gospel. Oftentimes you see that they go to these new cities that they think that they're pioneering and taking the gospel for the very first time. And it says they're met by the brothers. Christians, who? These guys. That God brought together and God did something radical in their life that they would have never imagined. They thought they were coming for a festival. And no, what God was doing is they were preparing them to be missionaries to go back to their city with the gospel. Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4. Okay, you have Peter and John. These two guys, that the church has just formed and they're going to the temple to worship. And they see a guy who's lame, Paralyzed. Right? And, and, and you know that guy. He's the white noise. I don't know. if you've, We're in Alpharetta where everything seems perfect, but I used to live in Durham. In Durham, there are homeless people everywhere. And after a while, you stop seeing them. Right? They, just, just, they don't even exist. So I can imagine that's what this guy looked like. He was the guy that was there every day that nobody paid attention to, but Peter and John stopped. And they paid attention. And what's fascinating, you can go back and read it, they never actually tell him that they're going to heal him. They give him Jesus, and he gets healed. But what you see is this brother who was simply at a place looking for God, he gets God. But not only does he get God, he becomes the tool, the instrument, that God would save 5,000 more brothers. Here is I say brothers on purpose because the Bible only, in this term, counts men, head of households, which means it could have been about 15,000 people are saved because one, pe- one person was there and two people decided to stop. Right, They did for the one instead of thinking about the many. And when they did for the one, a crowd was formed and the gospel flourished. You get the picture? These 11 ordinary men are now sitting here and two, 20,000 people have come to faith because they're simple obedience. Acts chapter 5, God continues to strengthen and build his church. Okay, and people get mad. Peter and John go to prison, and then they get released, and they pray, and there's more boldness. In Acts chapter 6 and 7, there's so many people coming to faith that the apostles can't even handle it anymore, so they they have to appoint people called deacons, and these deacons start caring for people. One of those deacons is a man named Stephen, okay? And Stephen, he is doing what you're supposed to do. He's telling people about Jesus, and as he's telling people about Jesus, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. There's this guy named Saul. He doesn't like it um, because he's zealous for God, so he kills Stephen. And I can only imagine that Paul, as he's doing that, looks on his face and he sees Jesus. And he thinks, there's something different about that, brother. So then in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9, this guy named Saul, our terrorist, is walking down a road to Damascus. And Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you? He says, I am Jesus, the one you think you're following, but you're not. And he absolutely wrecks this guy. But notice this, notice this. When did Paul come to faith? Was it when Jesus came to him? No, it's actually when Ananias came to him. If you notice this, this pattern all the way throughout the Bible, is that you you might think this, God, why don't you just do it? That's just not how it works. God's redemptive plan through history is you. It's people who carry the gospel and tell him. So Saul, he meets Jesus on the road, and then Jesus goes to a guy named Ananias, and he says, hey, I need you to go tell him about the gospel, because that's how it works. Okay, what I need you to see is that God always moves through redemptive history when his people are filled with his spirit, and they fall in love with him, and when they fall in love with him, they can't stop but tell people about Jesus, and that's how he works. So this guy named Paul, this same guy who persecuted the church, becomes the guy who takes the gospel to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are non-Jewish people. That would be you. He stands before Caesar, the ruler of the known world at that time. He writes most of the New Testament, and he's responsible for taking the gospel all the way to Spain, all the way to the New World. This terrorist is the guy who takes the gospel. Think about that. All right, this is the guy who was persecuting the church, and he gets beheaded by Caesar, and he proclaims the gospel of boldness. Listen to me, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people come to faith, and the gospel continue to spread because of the faithfulness of a few ordinary people. And I tell you this all the time, and I want you to hear me say this. You are God's plan A. If you will understand that, he doesn't use pastors to take the gospel. No, this is why we tell you our church is an army and not an audience. It's when we all grab onto the gospel and we all believe who Jesus is and we all tell people about it, what you see is multiplication. Look, you'll see it right here in Acts chapter 6. Listen, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Acts chapter nine, after Paul's converted. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Listen, it multiplied. You'll see those summary statements over and over and over again in the book of Acts. When God's people share God's glory in boldness, the gospel multiplies and God's not done yet. In 300 AD, there would be a guy named Constantine who would become the emperor of Rome. And in that time, there would be a plague that would hit Rome and everybody scattered. Much like the lame man, everybody became white noise, but the Christians didn't leave. They stayed there, and they loved there, and they cared for people. And what the emperor of Rome said is, there's something different about these people. While everybody else runs, they stay. And they care so much about Jesus that they're willing to give up their own life. And for the first time, the Roman Empire becomes a Christian nation. In 1500 AD, there would be a guy named Martin Luther who would look at the Catholic Church, and he would say, hey, I don't know what you're doing, but you're not teaching the Bible So he would write this thing called the 95 Theses, where he would translate the Bible into German, and he would tell them 95 things that they were doing that were not Christianity, and he would create the Great Reformation where the Bible would begin to be multiplied in common language and people would begin to take the gospel and it would spread. A guy named William Tyndale would do that in England. And over and over and over and over again, the Bible would be translated into common language so people like you and me could have it and the gospel would flourish. And in the 1700s and 1800s in the United States of America, we had three great awakenings where guys like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards believed God and they believed God for more and God spread the gospel through our country like wildfire in 2000. 18, there would be a group of people in North Carolina who would come together and they would move to Alpharetta, Georgia to plant a church. And they would do that because a guy in 1962 named Sam James decided that he was going to start a church in Durham called Homestead Heights Baptist Church. He preached one message and then went on the mission field for 40-something years in Vietnam. And here's the, here's the text of the message that he preached in 1962. It was Isaiah 54 too. And Lord, the place of my tent. And let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate places. That message, 1962. I listened to Sam James, 90-something years old, come back to the Summit Church after in 2002 they hired a guy named J.D. Greer who would take a dying Baptist church of 300 people and he would change the name to the Summit Church and that church over the next 15 years would grow to 13,000 people, would send over 400 missionaries all across the world and would plant churches everywhere, us being one of those churches. And Sam James said, as I prayed that prayer and as I spoke of that message in 1962, it took 50 years for me to see that come alive. But God is good. Brothers and sisters, he is not done yet. He is doing that at our church in this place when he birthed the movement out of here on August 12th of 2018. He did that through a group of people who have a story that's all connected and all of our stories are different, but it is no accident that we are sitting in this room today and all of our stories go back 2,000 years to 11 men sitting in an upper room when God says I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and I'll continue to do that until the day that I come back and I redeem my people. And the moment that you think that you are an accident is the moment that you need to go back and read the Bible. God loves you. He proved his love for you that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. And not only did he do that, he has not left you and he has not forsaken you and God is not done yet. Do you get it? Do you get it? You are bigger, you are part of a bigger narrative than just right here. I don't know what's right in front of you. I don't. But what I do know is that there's a God in heaven that looks down and he makes his face shine upon you. And he looks at you and he says, you are not the beginning of my story and you are not the end of my story and I know exactly what I'm doing and I put you here for such a time as this. And I planted this church here and I'm gonna use it and I'm gonna do more than what you could ever, ever ask or imagine. Guys, what if, what if you're here today for a reason? What if this story 2,000 years ago didn't stop there? What if every single circumstance, every single thing has led you to this moment? See, maybe you're sitting here thinking, God, where have you been my entire life? God's like, you have no clue. I've been here, through the valleys. I love Psalm 23. As I walk through the valley, you are with me. See, God never promises you won't go through the valley but what he does promise you is I'll never leave you or forsake you. And I know exactly what I'm doing and my plan is far bigger than you. My plan is that I'm going to redeem and restore all of this that which is lost. Listen to me, he's done it all. He has a plan, he's moving in history and you are a part of that plan. God can make a way. He can do more amazing things than you would ever imagine if you would simply like Paul, see the Lord and submit to his goodness. If Paul can save a terrorist, he can save a guy like me. And he can save a guy like you. If, Paul can use, if God can use 11 uneducated men to change the world, I think this room can do far more than what we had ever imagined. If we believe it. Guys, I don't, I don't get up here every Sunday and walk through the Bible because it's good piffy stories. I do it because it's true. And it's real. I didn't move here. We didn't move here because we just want to build a crowd. I want you to experience the way, the way that Jonathan Edwards said it. He says, I can describe honey to you all day long, but until you taste it, you'll never know how good it is. I want you to taste the love of God. I wish somebody would have told me. I wish somebody would have told me back then. It's amazing. And your life will be radically different for all of eternity if you'll just taste it. I want you to taste it because God can and will use you in more amazing ways than you'll ever imagine if you'll believe him and trust him and see his redemptive plan throughout history and not only see it, but see that you are part of it.